Haka, yeah, you know it. Uh, they're actually performed by uh, natives of New Zealand. You're listening to Spirits of New Mexico here is. for a wonderful Saturday evening here on this last Saturday in the month of January 2022. We're here with Jim Hammond and, of course, uh, uh, our producer as well, Eric uh, Di Provencio, who's here in the Kiva as well with a great last name. And they're both uh, toasting me. We are toasting you to a great end to the weekend. As always, we appreciate Jim for preparing the show. Celebrated author, as well as author of specifically the Wines of Enchantment uh, 2011. And uh, we'll have an update on that uh, here in the coming future. But got to say good evening to uh, both Jim and Eric. How are you, gentlemen? We're great. But if anyone was saying along with that, their tongue is still probably outside their mouth. Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's got me all fired up for sure. I need some of that energy every yeah. day of the week. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting, the, the, the lyrics there. It's uh, really something. So you have everything that uh, they're talking about, life and death and stomping your feet. And uh, <gasps> we're not going to be doing any of that. We're going to oh, be okay. stomping the grapes, uh, which is what you do. You stomp the grapes if you do anything, right, Jim? I think you probably Actually, seen that Actually, they could put, probably put them to business doing that. It says, hey, what you're doing your routine. How about getting in this vat and crush, crushing some grapes for us? There you go. Uh, that Maybe we should have a haka dance for us uh, crushing the grapes. I don't know. It could be. But it's uh, it's interesting you would do that because the Maori language, of course, is is all over the New Zealand area. A lot of the names I'll I'll be mentioning. Uh, my apologies to uh, my Maori friends if they if I mispronounce anything. Uh, sometimes it's hard to get your tongue wrapped around it the definitely. way they do. Oh, definitely. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're we're. Uh, if you're uh, still a little chilled and you're ready to put another log on the fire, this might be a good time to do it because we're going to cover the most southern vineyards in the world. That's right. These the vineyards grow around glaciers. If you can imagine that. Wow. Uh, and it's the central Otago area. And that's where our wine comes from. We'll mention that right off the bat. Uh, because we've already been enjoying it, you should at least know what we're enjoying. It's a Rabbit Ranch Central Otago Pinot Noir 2019. And uh, Pinot Noir is the grape in, in this particular region. Uh, it is uh, about 70% of, of all the grapes. They, they do a number of others as, as well, but that's the principal grape. And I may have tried a wine from here before, but if I did, I can't, re I can't recall it now. But I can recall this one. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And it's characteristic of a lot of the ones from the central Otago. There, it's the, this is the area where it comes from. Uh, is considered uh, Cromwell, is considered uh, the classic Central Otago. But, of course, if you've never had any, you don't know what that means anyway. Basically, it means they're delivering a lot of fruit and not a lot of tannins. Uh, the color is, is gorgeous. It's a clear, clear, almost a crystal clear color. But you can tell from the translucence of it that there's not much tannin in there. And, in fact, this is one I didn't double decant. I, I just poured some in the glass and said, hey, no, this one's good to go. Uh, I noticed also that it seemed like it was a little bit more chilled than I thought it might be for a red. Is that, yeah. is that a good, it, a good it, it, observation? It's more chilled than I thought it would be uh, when we delivered it, but a lot of times we, when we do the double decant, that also warms it up a little bit. Uh -huh. So that's probably part of what's going on. So, it, But it's it's it definitely was open enough, no question about its being open. Okay. And uh, so... Yeah, I'm really enjoying this a lot. It's got all the classic flavors you would expect and, you know, a lot of cherry and uh, really nicely done. A little, little bit of uh, orange peel, but uh, 
marvelous, marvelous wine. So um, we're going to cover, you know, just so you have a context, we're going to cover all the Pinot Noir areas in New Zealand. Um, it's, of course, more known for the, the Sauvignon Blanc, uh, which are some people consider some of the greatest Sauvignon Blancs in the world. Um, and, in, in fact, the way they d- deliver certainly identifies that. They have wonderful fruit, uh, bracing acidity, um, and great minerality. Um, and you can get them for about a third of the price you'd pay for a Sancerre at a, the Loire Valley. So represents good value as well. And I've had a ton of these uh, all the time, but also anytime we're in Hawaii, this is one of the, you know, that's the Sablox, one of the ones we pick because we, we eat a lot of seafood when we're there. A lot of seafood. And that goes great with it. But, uh, of course, the Pinot Noir is, is their second-tier grape, I guess you would say, as far as people m- might be aware of. And it is also a great value uh, wine. The, the first one I had was actually in Las Vegas, uh, which is where I, I know Eddie has had a lot of fabulous wines there. Yes, I have. Uh, some, uh, more sommeliers in Vegas uh, than any other place per capita. Yeah, well, I did, that I didn't know, but that makes sense because uh, there could be a lot of heavy hitters in there and just say, yeah, give me a bottle of that. How much is it? Oh, it's only about $10,000 a bottle. Oh, that's okay. I just want it at the table so I can do that. You better just take one then. Right? Uh, yeah, okay, whatever. But... Um, just a little recap of, of history. The uh, winemaking actually began in the 1850s, and uh, the the first uh, Pinot Noir plantings were in 1883 in Masterson in Waiwarapa. Uh, sounds sounds like a barking dog, doesn't it? Waiwarapa. Does. Uh, any, anyway, uh, prohibition and and uh, the depression impacted them like it did everybody else. Uh, so it really came back in the 1960s. Which is not unusual. A lot of a lot of areas are, are like that. In 1973, the modern day Brancott Estate, and you might have seen some of their wines out out there, uh, planted Marlborough's uh, first vineyard, produced its first Sauvignon Blanc in 1979. So we're not talking long history as we do in some areas we talked about. And uh, so by 1985, a lot of wine lovers were were discovering these wines. Uh, George Tabor who also wrote the Judgment of Paris book, uh, said that Cloudy Bay, uh, Cloudy Bay is what many people consider the world's best Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, of course, a lot of Frenchmen would probably demur that, but just the same. Uh, it, it, for value, you, it's hard to beat. They really are. Uh, so I, that's always a good one I, I love. Uh, if we just look at New Zealand, I, everything, it's as you probably know, if you've, you've seen the, on the map, I'm sure, there's two islands, the North Island and the South Island. You might notice that North Island and South Island are really close to each other. That, again, is the classic Teutonic uh, plate shifting that separated those into two separate islands. And uh, so it's a fairly wide channel between it. I think it's 20 to 30 miles. But still, a very significant difference, and it also affects the weather and also affects, of course, the kind of grapes you're going to grow in those areas. No surprise on that. About 91,000 acres as of 2017. Um, about 45% comes from the Marlboro area. Uh, if you're picking up uh, bottles of wine, almost all the time, it's going to be a Marlboro. Uh, it, it'll be Marlboro Pinot Noir or more likely a Sauvignon Blanc, most likely. And uh, then a- after that is uh, the Central Antago, which has 25%, which is kind of surprising when you think of, about that, that uh, there was only one that showed up in total wine. If they're well represented in Pinot Noir, uh, but there was only one they had from Central Otago, and I grabbed it uh, because I really wanted I really wanted to try these wines and see how they differed from some of the other ones I've tried. Uh, I should also mention that last Wednesday I went to the Albuquerque Country Club uh, with some good friends, and uh, we had we sampled seven bottles of Pinot Noir. Wow. We we seriously sampled seven, seven. between how many people? Eight people. Oh, okay. That's that's not so. That's really no, good. That, that's it's, really good. It's, it's not bad. It all went. Uh, just just in case you wondered, but they were all interestingly they were all either California or Oregon, uh, Willamette Valley, obviously. So nothing outside of that of that particular area. Not, not too exotic, huh? Well, they, they were all exotic in their own right. They were all excellent. I mean, I mean, there was some. 
amazing ones. I could probably do a separate story just on that, but we're focusing on New Zealand here. And uh, so the, the areas after that, the uh, Wairarapa area is about 9%, and uh, then Canterbury, 7%, and Hawke's Bay is 5%. So the, the, the three first ones I mentioned, you know, Marlborough, Central Otago, and in the Wairarapa, it's really more or less the Martinborough area. Uh, harvest, by the way. So remember, we're down under. We're on the other side of the world. Everything is reversed. Okay, it's almost harvest time over there. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, late February in the north, and early in mid-April in the south. Okay, so uh, again, it's this. This is uh, e- even though it doesn't look like a huge uh, country, it extends a long, long way through the, the whole area. And uh, so the. Uh, Marlborough and Martinborough. Do you think those names might get confused? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, they would definitely get confused. So Marlborough is is in on the South Island, and it's on the northeast side. The Martinborough is on the North Island on the southeast side. So they're basically facing each other across the the waters, uh, but wildly different types of wine. So a Pinot Noir from Martinborough will be very different from one from Marlborough. Very different, very different types of soil. Uh, so if, if we looked at the, the Marlborough area, it's uh, produced the majority of the Sauvignon Blancs. Actually, from the percentage, you could probably figure that. Uh, also does a fair amount of Pinot Noir. Martinborough Pinot Noir is the one it's most known for. And they're done more in a Burgundian style. Um, and uh, they're actually starting to subdivide the, the areas w- within Martinborough. Remember, this is part of the Wawarapa area. The other two areas are Gladstone and Masterson. Uh, they're definitely English-sounding names, obviously, uh, but the one that almost anyone would hear would be Martinborough, so that's, that's why we focus on it. Um, the, uh, about 3% of the, the plantings uh, and 1% of the production uh, in the Wairarapa area, so they, they have very low yield, obviously very high quality grapes. Um, and uh, then the, uh, just to describe it in a little bit more detail, it's uh, located within a wide river valley uh, between the Rumataka mountain range and the eastern Wairarapa hills. So it's got protection on both sides. And the, the kind of soil they, ha- they have there is, has very high natural as- acid in it. And uh, the, the wines, I should, the grapes, I should say, and uh, very noticeably freshness, which is what you expect. If if you have good acidity or crispness, that's the, what we no, sometimes call the freshness of it. I knew I should have brought my map in, my oh, atlas. Yeah, uh, just just as a way of rep- representing it. Yes. Okay. So uh, Martinborough, of course, is uh, is about fifty percent. Pinot Noir, so obviously you can see that's where they're they're, they're focusing on. It's uh, they basically classify as as uh, as uh, differing from Central Otago, and they have deeper color. Uh, it definitely would have to because these are fairly light light colored, uh, earthy, gamey notes, uh, more complexity and tighter tannins uh, compared to the lighter fruit-driven style of Otago. Boy, I can certainly reference that just from sampling this one, and I think Eric would probably agree. Definitely, I it's do like, agree. Yeah, it's it's a very different style and a delightful one. This is one that people who don't normally like red wine or tannins uh, will probably find this to be very attractive. You know, if uh, my first taste of it, it, it I didn't get much flavor, but uh, maybe as a as it's warming up and it's sitting here breathing a little bit, it, I feel a, uh, I taste a lot more broadness in its in its yep. uh, palate. Right, and part of the thing is is. Uh, Tannin will will drive some of the flavor. Uh-huh. Uh, if you have le- less tannin, that it is just the fruit that you're really uh, expressing on. Okay. Now, we have done a Martinborough before. We did one, I think, about three years ago. It was a Pallister Estate, which is one of the top wineries there, and that was very good. And I do seem to recall that one was de- definitely a bigger, uh, uh, huskier, if you will, Pinot Noir. Okay, the Central Otago area. So, it, so since you don't have a map in front of you, or maybe you do, that would be really very clever if you do that, um, it's all the way down to the South Island. It's not all the way at the tip. There's an area below that that's all the glaciers. And if you look at it, in fact, check this out on Google Maps. If you like wine, 
it, go to Google Maps and, and, and just check it so you can get an idea of, of the wine you're trying and get a, try to visualize something from what you can see. And in fact, it can be very addicting. I did this a lot because this is an area I wasn't that familiar with. So I was zooming in and checking the, the gorges there, which are amazing. They had these very deep gorges that was all cut from the glaciers from this area. Remember, this is really far south. If you want to go below there, you're in Antarctica, friends. So um, this is this is an area that, that has very cold winters. It would be no surprise. Uh, the... the the weather in the summer can be hot, but in the area where uh, this particular wine comes from, they basically identify that they, uh, they have mild summers. And, of course, uh, mild is a relative term, right? Right. At first, uh, some people, mild might be, well, it only gets up to 95 degrees. So, whatever. So, it's, uh, it's very interesting, too, because the, the area that they identify, it goes all the way out to the southeast coast, doesn't quite go all the way to the the, uh, the northwest coast, and all of the wine regions are right in the center of it. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I, wanted, oh, I, I wanted to show Eric a picture so oh, he yeah. could see. I love it. I love so, the maps. Yeah. So, so they're all pretty closely uh, located together, but they're all separated by the the mountain areas there, which is it's a really rugged area. Uh, in fact, I saw one video. Uh, I, I should have sent you a link to it that uh, there was a vehicle going up a, a, a mountain ridge, um, and you just knew that because it was level at one point. Uh, it was a lot of snow on the ground, and other than a very distant uh, telephone pole, you wouldn't know you were actually on an actual road. And, it, 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 and I was looking at that and saying, no way am I going to be driving on that ridge in that snow. That looks whew, really scary. But nonetheless, they have a lot of sunshine, uh, and that's a key element, very much like it is actually in New Mexico. And uh, in that area, they actually have, believe it or not, a continental climate, not a maritime climate. So both Martinboro and, and Marlboro obviously have maritime climates. I mean, right there. Uh, but so Central Otago is going to have a very different climate, and that's going to be one of its factors, as well as the, the rich limestone uh, soils around there. Uh, the, the fact that each one has their own little microclimate, each of those regions uh, identifies, and someone who's familiar with it could tell you, oh, no, this, this one uh, came from the, the, uh, one of the other areas, like it came from Alexandria or Bannockburn. So you have Wanaka, Bendigo, Gibbstown, Cromwell. Uh, on this map, they misspelled Cromwell, and Bannockburn and Alexandria. Those are the identifying areas. So what what would be the elevation around there? Is it comparable to New Mexico? Surely it's not that high, right? A couple thousand meters. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it, it can get get up there. Okay, yeah, that is pretty close there. But, huh? but they aren't right on the top of mountains. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in some areas, you know, the, it, it's not the top of the mountains. They're, they're on the slopes. Okay. Uh, and, again, usually with an orientation to get maximum sun. Okay. Uh, which is no surprising because you want to it, it has a shorter harvest time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, it, they really have to get <laughs> the grapes have to be really uh, getting going to to get the level up. So this was 13.2 percent. Uh, so that's that's probably about right. Uh, probably not going to see much above 13 and a half, uh, which is fine. That's a the, the alcohol you typically get in the Burgundy area, and nobody complains about it there. So this is is a really good. The other map I had actually covers it in a little bit more detail about each d different area. So first wines were planted here in 1864. This is by a, a Frenchman named Jean Desiree Thoreau. Um, and he was doing this for 20 years. Uh, he really, uh, being a typical Frenchman, he knew this would be a perfect area for growing Pinot Noir, and he did. Uh, but he, he left, and winemaking there did not resume until 1975. Wait a second. That's 80, 90 years? That's right. Absolutely. What what took him so long? Apparently, uh, Jean Desiree Fraud was the only one who had the passion and the and the excitement to to grow something there. Mm -hmm. What did happen there from the 1860s to 1900 was gold mining. Oh, okay. so it was a lot of gold mining that went on there, uh, and it's and so most of the population that was there 
and most of the infrastructure was for the gold mining and also for sheep. There was a lot of sheep farms there. Uh, so those were the areas that were primarily driving it Un- until other people, maybe maybe someone had read uh, some information uh, that he had written about uh, what a great area this would be. And so that's when it started up. Uh, the region has a total of 1,932 hectares. That translates to about 4,774 acres, so a little bit under 5,000 acres, probably right about that now. Average yield about 10.5 tons per year, so that's a uh, that's about 2.4% of all of the New Zealand wine production. Okay. Uh, again, as I said, it has a continental climate, uh, hot summers in some of the areas, uh, and very cold winters, uh, long dry autumns. Um, so they experience weather conditions from one extreme to the other. So the, and as I said, they all, all, all the, the regions in there are all very close together. They're all in the center and of central Otago which is no big surprise, I guess. Uh, so it's also the fastest growing area in New Zealand. Uh, once people started to notice how wonderful the wines were there, uh, it uh, jumped up very quickly. So they had 500 acres and 14 wineries in 1997. 2007, that's 10 years later, right? 89 wineries and 4,000 acres, uh, which 70% is Pinot Noir. So obviously... Uh, people finally figured out after they started trying the Pinot Noir, they said, oh, no, we, we need to uh, get more land and do more of this. So things in the seven, 1970s just exploded all over the world for, for wine. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot, lot of that is, is the demand for wine goes up, and, uh-huh. and that meant it was economically feasible for someone to go in here and plant grapes. Uh-huh. But if, it, if you didn't figure you had a market for it, this is not exactly the first place you would go. Well, what right? do gold miners drink? They probably drink whiskey and beer, I would imagine. Most likely, yeah. That that, that would be their typical thing. Although, uh, if there's still any miners there, they're probably drinking a lot of Pinot Noir now, if they have <laughs> right. any sense at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. So, the, the, the Cromwell region. Okay, now this is really cool. So, to the east of, of Cromwell, the Clutha River uh, feeds the, the, the recently dammed Lake Dunstan, which is a really good sized lake um, and and it's uh, before it empties into what's called the Cromwell Gorge and again the gorges there are unbelievable if you recall our own gorge up up north above uh, above Taos uh, this is as dramatic as any of those are if not more dramatic it's quite quite amazing this is why I say go to Google Max and, and, and Google Earth and You'll be amazed what you'll see there. To the west, the Kawarau River joins the gorge just below the town. Uh, every picture I've seen of central Otago is breathtaking. The, the areas, the, the, uh, the, the slopes, uh, the gorges, everything is just quite dramatic. Um, the flooding of the t- old town of Cromwell uh, was very disruptive. The townspeople, of course, when they dammed the, 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 the river, it, the, that, that city went under underwater it, which is a really weird thing but that happens and there's a few places where that's happened dams went up and and towns were submerged uh-huh. in fact most horror movies start that way <laughs> right. says, oh yeah. yeah there was some weird stuff in the town before they buried it under the water and you know so you don't want to go swimming down there anyway <laughs> uh, I just have weird things like that um, so everything was re- rebuilt in the new Cromwell uh, so, again, as I said, this was a, a gold mining area for a long time. Now it's Pinot Noir. It's interesting because it kind of reminds me of the 1850s in California was the gold rush. Mm-hmm. And right after that, what were we planning? What grape were we planting? Zinfandel. Uh-huh. So, uh, again, there was a very similar kind of history. So this particular one, again, it's the Rabbit Ranch 2019 Pinot Noir, 13.2% ABV. Twenty-seven ninety-nine at total wine. Uh, I think it's a very good wine for the price. Uh, on the label, and, and uh, Eric was reading the label, so he was probably amused by this too. Uh, wild rabbits once roamed on the high country, uh, the sheep station of the South Island Central Otago. Land is now home of our flourishing vineyards. Abundant sunshine and mild summers, combined with cool nights, provide idyllic conditions for producing fine Pinot Noir. Rabbit Ranch is a vibrant, opulent expression of what makes Central Otago Pinot Noir unique. 
And under that, it says a bright-eyed Pinot Noir with a fluffy tail. Oh, yeah. I think they still have rabbits on their mind, you know, just just saying. Uh, but Mike. actually, this is a collaborative venture, by the way. It's a, a group of vineyards uh, that were individually owned, uh, are part of that were part of the sheep station, were all joined together to form what they call Rabbit Ranch. And I, I saw a number of videos of, of it. I, I was looking for a tech sheet, didn't find one. I love tech sheets. It tells me all the technical details that I love to pour over. But uh, I was seeing the, the punch downs and the pour over. So I was seeing how they're basically how they're manipulating the grapes, uh, which is part of it. And their bottling facility is really impressive there. It was one of the better ones I've, I've, I've seen. I mean, those are fascinating to, to watch. What makes it better than, than some you've seen? Uh, it's, it seemed to be more elaborate, uh, the bottling, the whole process. And, and of course, all of them, they, they, they start with uh, the first thing you do in the bottling is you have the empty bottle, mm-hmm. and then they usually spray the inside to make sure it's totally clean. Mm-hmm. They'll use a inert gas or something, and then they, they go around, and you know it's, it's all different processes. The uh, label itself, this is a twist label, it goes on with another machine, and then it finally goes out, and then, it's, then they just put them into cases, and out the door they go. But obviously they have a reasonable amount of them there. And twist or cork, there's no... Uh there's no indication of quality with a twist-off cork or a, or a regular cork, huh? Not anymore. Okay. Uh, well, particularly at one time there was, huh? Oh, oh absolutely. It, it was. Uh, in, in fact, when people wanted to migrate that way, they said, "Well, you know, it says we we can do a great job uh, with wines that don't aren't normally going to be laying on their side for a long period of time. So, you know, white wines uh, in, in particular." And eventually some Pinot Noirs were done that way, although mm-hmm. some winemakers are even doing it with bigger uh, grapes like Syrah. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, there was one producer in Washington State. Um, he did uh, one half of his, his uh, crop in cork and the other half in cap bottle. Mm-hmm. And after 10 years, they tried them. Everyone liked the, the ones in the screw cap better. Always got to follow the science, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wouldn't you wish some other people would? <laughs> but anyway, um, so some uh, total wine that had a descriptor on it, a bright, vibrant red with brilliant clarity and deep uh, ruby, ruby hues, which I would agree. Uh, punchy a bouquet of dark cherry and sweet spice with rose, violet, and plenty of ripe brambly fruit. Okay. Uh, James Suckling gave this one 90 points. Uh, plenty of fried rose. I don't think I've ever fried rose, so I'm really having a little difficulty with that term. But never, anyway. Yeah, I never uh, tried that. Potpourri, and I'm not getting that kind of flowery element going on. Wild herbs and, and leaves are an offer. I wonder if he was drinking the same one we were. Anyway, uh, supple, fleshy fruit with succulent, drinkable cherries. So anyway, the, the reason we mentioned more than one of these descriptors is because everyone's palate is different. Everyone's uh, approach to it, everyone, the way they look at it, is going to see it differently. So if you're looking for a big, muscular wine, this would not be it. But if you want something that is going to be fine to drink for a long time if you want, no palate fatigue whatsoever, this one will do it for you. So uh, so, so after it's opened up and warmed up a little bit, what, what do you think? Uh, you know what? I have to admit, every sip I take gets better and better. And I am. I'm glad you said that about the everybody's palate's different because I do get a little bit of uh, fruit and maybe maybe uh, rose petals in there. Yeah. I'm I'm getting that. Just I mean, as the more time this this wine sits out, it's it's becoming more flavorful with every oh, yeah. moment. I feel like. Yeah, it's possible I could have done the double decant on on th- this one, but I also like uh, on occasion I like to sample wine from the beginning and, and watch as it does evolve because uh-huh. you get more of the structure that way uh-huh. as, as you see it open up and you get more of, of what it has to deliver. And that this one is really delivering a lot. It's oh, it gets I I'm telling you, it, it opens up more and more every every moment. Oh, there's one other thing I I almost forgot to mention. Actually, I almost did forget to mention it. Um, 20 miles upriver on this, so the the uh, is is the Cabarau, uh Gorge, and, and so it, that goes all the way out to Queenstown, which is uh, which is right in is is the southernmost town uh, that leads out uh, through a, a huge lake uh, on, on the interior, and so as this thing goes through. Uh, about 20 miles before it gets so the the uh, the damning of the 
of the of Lake Dunstan again at the and, and the river there, they join join together at a point just below where Cromwell is. But if you go twenty miles up that river, there is a, a, a ridge there called the the Kowawal, uh, uh Gorge Suspension Bridge, built in eighteen eighty. Guess what it's most famous for? The start of bungee jumping. No. Yes. Okay. That was that is the origin of bungee jumping. Okay. And uh, in fact, they 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 used it. They uh, called it bungee with a Y instead of with a double E. I see. Uh, okay. So, I mean, as long as they came up with the term, I guess they do whatever they want. And uh, part of the reason I, I learned this was when we did this penal test, and uh, one of the, our members, Joe Gamble, uh, I'd ask anyone while we were sampling the penal, any of you guys um, tried any Central Otago Pinot Noir? And Joe says, I was there. Uh-huh. I said, really? So anyway, we, we had a great talk, and he explained this whole thing about the bungee jumping and, and, and all the rest of that. So I had to check it out. And it's, one of the things he's, he said is, and they have an organization that does this, right? So they, they weigh you and measure you uh-huh. so that they know that when you get to the end of the bungee, your head and your shoulders are in the icy cold oh, waters. Oh, boy, wow. So talk about a rush. All right, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. just for the more adventurous of you out there if you want to try it. But uh, if you ever want, if, if that, that, that's always a nice question you could ask us, someone, that, as a nice stumper says, do you know where bungee jumping originated? About the most south you could possibly imagine. All right. So this is a very cool area. First time we have done a wine from here. Uh, and I hope you really get a chance to try it uh, at Total Wine or one of the other uh, local stores around there. Tell them you want to do a Central Otago Pinot Noir and uh, challenge them a little bit because there's, there's not going to be huge amounts of it out there, but most of the good stores are probably going to have at least one or two representative ones that you could check out. So uh, with a little bit of time we have left, uh, actually we have a fair amount of time left, I wanted to cover one other thing, and that is, and, and this is particularly since, you know, we're kind of training Eric while he's here more about wine. He's enjoying it a lot. Uh, it's rough. It's training. This it's, it's oh, yeah. tough training. I got to tell it's you, it's tough training. You have to keep drinking a lot of wine. You know, it's terrible. Yep. But drinking and thinking wine. But he, he's bearing up very well with it. I, I must say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm doing my best. So we're we're, we're going to cover some uh, the the wine terms, and some of them may make logic sense to you. Some of them may not. But uh, we periodically do is at least once or twice a year. I I review a lot of the wine terms that we use on the show. Uh, so you have a better idea because I know some of you are very experienced uh, wine drinkers and know a lot of it, but so some of you may not be that. And some of the terms go by and you're like, what does that mean? Yeah, that's one of the things actually I was missing in your book was a kind of a little glossary. Right. A right. little vocabulary section. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah, keep, carry on. Let's, let's, go, let's go with some, some vocabulary. Okay. So these are some of the wine terms. I, I usually break them into the various areas that they apply to. So basically we're talking about vineyard management uh, and grape processing and then what we discover on the nose and the palate. I probably could have covered uh, the site too because that's an important element of it. Uh, but a lot of the terms that we use for site really identify colors or clarity, which most people would be pretty familiar with, I would think. Uh, so vineyard management. Okay, as as many of you know, and not everyone believes this, but majority of people do. Uh, great wines are made in the vineyard. Uh, if you don't start with good grapes, you are not going to make good wine. Uh, so that's always a key, and that's one of the reasons why, when they do vineyard management, they're going to do things like like uh, try to restrict the yield somewhat. There's a lot of different ways you can do that, so that what you end up with are smaller, usually more intense berries uh, that are guaranteed to provide a better wine for you. So the first one is field blend. And this is a a term you'll encounter a lot. It used to be a a very common thing to do, but much less likely these days. And this is where you have uh, one vineyard and you have different grape types in it. And you basically would would, uh, take all these, you harvest them all at the same time and process them. Often they're all processed together. So a couple of problems with that. Obviously, one is if the grapes don't all ripen exactly at the same time, uh, you could have some that are slightly unripe, un, uh, so that could be uneven. And they're going to evolve differently when they are in the, in the hopper. So 
when we do a blend these days, to typically they will they will uh, harvest each grape when it's at the perfect time. It'll be it'll be uh, fermented separately, and it'll stay in the in, in the uh, in the cask for a while before they decide to do any blending. The idea is to see how the grape is going to evolve, get a better sense of it, so that they know what proportions are, are best when they put the blend together. Uh-huh. Okay, with a with a field blend, it's like <laughs> you just take your best shot and just hope it's going to work. Uh-huh. So sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and of course, a lot of the vineyards back then, they didn't even know what some of these grapes were. They said, "Well, we got a lot of black skin grapes here. Uh, I'm not sure what they are, but we'll put them all together and see what it tastes like." Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, obviously now we, it's very different. If you look at any vineyards these days, uh, besides all the different trellis techniques they use, you'll see each one will say, this is clone number da-da-da of whatever. So this is a Dijon, the, uh, Dijon clone number five that I'm put, putting in here in this row. And over here, it's a different clone. So they identify exactly everything and, and when it was put in. So people are really good about very clearly identifying the grapes, the clones, uh, every everything that they're doing, and they write it all all down so that they they know what works and what doesn't. That's you know that's part of the science of winemaking. So there's part of it is art, but a good bit of it is is science and chemistry, and a little bit of experimentation, right? Yeah. Well, I guess oh, that's yeah. that falls under science, right? The experiment. Right. Right. And then, of course, if it's an organic vineyard, it means that the grapes were grown organically without chemical uh, help. Uh, which is always a very good thing. Uh, so anything you do with disease control or soil enrichment is done logically. Like a lot of times, you can plant different um, flowers there uh, and, and crop that will that will repel any kind of insects. Um, however, it doesn't mean the wine itself is totally organic. Uh, an organic wine is one that is bottled organically, meaning they probably use very little or no sulfur in the process as as, as well. So if they say it was grown with organic grapes, that's what you know. It was only the grapes growing that was the organic part, not what they did when they did the grape processing. Okay. 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 And uh, sulfur is added, correct? It's not, yep. it doesn't come about as a process of no, fermentation. It's, it's, well, well, there's a little bit of sulfur that can occur naturally in different things. But, oh, okay. Uh, this is something they use. It, it it's, uh, has a, a lot of uh, advantages. Uh, including in the processing of, of the of the grape itself, and it, it it will keep out a lot of the the elements that are not not good for it. So it's and and the other thing, if you don't have any sulfur in the wine, it's not going to age. Okay. Uh, so, uh, or organic wines that are totally or organic, bottled that way, with very little sulfur, typically uh, don't age very well. And and what do you get if you if you don't have sulfur in your wine? You get a Vinegar? Was it go straight oh, to vinegar a lot quicker? Uh, it probably would, although most people drink them right, right up. Uh, but it, it, that's still a process that takes a while. It's more the flavors fade okay. quickly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so grape processing. Though the other thing I mentioned was single vineyard. A lot of times, if they single vineyard, uh, they'll either say single vineyard on it, and they might give you details, or it may have a particular vineyard name on it. There are some names of vineyards that all you have to do is put it on a label and people will grab it. For instance, if, if you're in Paso Robles and you have a Zinfandel that says it came from the Ducey Vineyard, mm-hmm. D-U-S-I, grab it. Okay. Because that's one of the, that, that's some of the best grapes you can get in Paso Robles. So, uh, again, if you're more familiar with the actual vineyards, uh, you can more accurately pre- predict what you'll probably get in the bottle. And of course, the other term we mention a lot is myolactic fermentation, uh, often abbreviated. It's almost always abbreviated, which is MLF, um, and it's a process that converts the malic acids, such as you would get in apple, into lactic acid, like you have in butter. So the element is is to soften, make the the wine less tannic, uh, and I mean, I mean less acidic. So it basically softens it, makes it more approachable. Uh, if you do 100% MLF, um, the thing you want to be careful about is make sure you haven't really violated all the acidity because you still want to have that crispness that you get. And, and so if you don't do that, which is where and when you overdo it, you get uh, – and it's typically done with red uh, red grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when it's done with white wines, um, that's it's usually partial uh, malolactic. But if they do full, 
uh, you end up what we call the oaky, buttery California Chardonnays. Uh-huh, okay. If, if you're familiar with, with those, they, they kind of taste like soda pop. So you have very little acidity going on, but a lot of people have, a, a, you know, when they first start drinking wine, they have trouble with the acidity element of uh-huh. it. They and have that sweet tooth still, huh? And the sweet tooth, yeah. So the yeah, what 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 they do is is they is they keep the Chardonnay in oak for a while, uh-huh. which mutes all the fruit flavors, and then they do a malolactic con- uh, converse, conversion, and that's gonna uh, it's gonna make it buttery and less acidic, and so and that's a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be a hugely popular one. There was a backlash on that, and now a lot of it is it's not done that way, but there still are many out there. And they'll often sometimes put butter in the name of the, so that, that you know that. Oh, it's a buttercup Chardonnay. Oh, this is just what I want. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, I'm glad you covered that because I, I came across that malolactic fermentation in your book last night. And oh. that, was, that was one of my questions for today. Oh, oh there you go. So perfect. Yeah. Now, now you've got it. All right. Uh, an, another term that you'll run into is surly, uh, S-U-R-L-I-E. Uh, it means on the leaves. This is a French term. And basically what it is, this is an alternative. So if you want to get more of a buttery element in the Chardonnay, for example, this is a typical one that they do, uh, then you're always stirring the leaves. This is all the spent yeast cells and everything. So you're basically mixing it back in. And this is something you do every day. So it's a dedicated thing that that you do. Uh, A lot of Muscadet wines uh, from the Loire Valley area uh, will actually say Surly on it so that you you know that that's the process that they did uh, to enrich and and make it a richer, give it a richer mouthfeel. So that's basically what what that does. And um, then another term that you might have been familiar with if you saw the, the movie Bottle Shock. I have not seen that. Oh, you should see that movie. It's oh. it, it's fun. Oh yeah, it's okay. a really fun movie. Uh, racking. So one of the things that they they mentioned what, what was that uh, Jim Barrett uh, really liked to rack the wine, so he would transfer from one container to another. The idea was was to remove any of the impurities, keep it as clean as possible, and they, they do racking as opposed to heavy filtering uh, to to accomplish this. In his case, uh, what happened is, and it can happen sometimes when you do as much as many rackings as he did, is it changed the color of the Chardonnay initially. And, and the, it got a really dull color. And he thought, oh, oh, I, I screwed up on, on this one. And he was upset enough about it uh, that he uh, offered it for sale to one, one of the other guys out there. He, he said, you can have all my cases for like a dollar a bottle or something like that. And uh, then the wine turned back. Re- recovered itself uh-huh. and he tried it again and he says oh this is actually going to be great um uh I, you know what i'm gonna have to do i'm, I'm gonna just send him a telegram i'm gonna say uh you know you haven't picked any of this up i'm only going to give it 24 hours if you don't i'm going to take it off the block and he said it was the longest 24 hours of his <laughs> entire life the guy didn't contact him he took all the all of the the, the wines back and he, it was submitted to the wine tasting, and it won the best Chardonnay wow. over the top white Burgundies. Excellent. So, if if you know that know that what that term meant, then you have a better understanding of, of what was going on there. So, uh, another term uh, that is in the in in the uh, Bob Parker uh, era uh, came out, and that's called a fruit bomb. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fruit hopefully bomb. there's nothing explosive in the wine. But when we, when we say fruit bomb, we mean it was highly extracted, high alcohol, uh, fruit forward, and aggressive. Okay, that's a term that they they use. Again, highly extracted means that that you're leaving the skins on for a lot longer. So again, when you do that, you're going to get more color, you're going to get more tannins, uh, more more concentration along with it. And typically, that's done if you're going with high alcohol. In other words, if you start with grapes that are high sugar content then if you don't do that, you'll end up with an unbalanced wine where you get a lot of burn. But having putting more of that, that uh, sink in in it is going to provide a balancing element. Mm-hmm. And Bob Parker loves those. So a, a number of winemakers were actually influenced to do that, uh, which caused some, its own backlash, as you can imagine. But there it goes. But that's just other terms that we, we use. Okay, detecting a wine's nose. Okay. And we do 
call it that as as uh, some A's. Uh, it's called the deductive deductive tasting method. Very Sherlockian in its process. So you're looking at all the elements to come together to decide what kind of wine this is, starting with the color. Uh, and again, even d- different if it's a single grape type, uh, the color will also, might also tell you what type of grape it was. Again, if you're really good at, at, at color, uh, you know, at, at, at identifying specific colors, not everyone is. That's not my greatest strength, but there you go. Um, then when you get to the, the, the nose, it's everything you pick up in it. And of course, different parts of the, of the glass, will, you'll pick up different notes. You pick up more of the, the grape elements in the center, whereas when you get to the edge, you're picking up all the processing that went on, including the uh, oak, if it was, it was an oak for a while, and things like that. You, you definitely get a different element from both the middle of the glass and the side. I see, all right, yeah. Man, that's one of our little tricks that we have to try to figure these things out. So the, the wine's nose is divided into two areas, the aroma that comes from the grape and the bouquet that comes from the, 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 the uh, harvesting, the fermentation, and the aging. So all those elements are, are what, what we call the bouquet. So again, even though those two terms are kept uh, identified separately, technically most people co- conflate them together. Mm-hmm. And they say aroma, bouquet, the same. They aren't actually, okay. as you can see from your nose. <laughs> so anyway, it's um, another term that I, I always loved was foxy. Okay, so this term came about from uh, the uh, North American grapes, okay? So it has to do with the, the type of grape that you use and the aroma of the wine that as, the, as a result. So that, again, this is a characteristic of our North American grapes. The species, uh, the, the uh, genus is Vitus. Uh, vinifera is the species. That's the, all the ones in the old world. Okay. So Vitus, uh, and then the, uh, the two you have are Lombrusca and Rotifolia. Rotifolia. Uh, so the Vitus Lombrusca wines, uh, grapes are Catawba, the Concord and Niagara. Uh, you've all have probably heard of Concord. If you heard the other two are also very similar to that. The Vitus Rotifolia uh, uh, is Muscadine and Scuppernog. The Scuppernog grape was, was the one that the French Huguenots uh, tried to make into wine in the 1850s, I believe. It was the first attempt at making wine in North America. We were the first successful, of course, in New Mexico, but right. they, they were trying it. And because they, they were not aware of what, what this was, the uh, it's, it's gamey might be a better term for it than, than, than foxy, because foxy also means sexy, and there was nothing sexy about these wines, I can tell you. But uh, the, when they tried it, they uh, sniffed, they said, Mandu, the white is awful. There must have been an animal that got in the cask. Oh, 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 pour it out. It's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> so anyway... Um, that became unsuccessful. The only other people that tried to do after that were in Virginia, but they didn't realize that the, and they were using old world grapes. They didn't realize that they were going to be susceptible to a certain louse, uh, the phylloxera louse that ate the roots. So Uh they were not able to do it. Mm -hmm. When they were, when they planted those kind of grapes here, the mission grape in New Mexico, Mm -hmm. we didn't have that particular nasty louse here. Mm -hmm. So they were able to thrive. So this is the first place beginning in 1629, uh, 1630 roughly, that uh, wine was first successfully made. So it's because we had the ones that were not foxy. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, typicity. This is another cute one. Uh, that's kind of a psalm term. Uh, it refers to the wine being typical of the grape or the wine region, more, more typically the, the, the grape. So if you have a wine, they say it's Chardonnay, and you're trying, like, this doesn't taste anything like what I expect, a Chardonnay grape, then it doesn't have the typicity of it. And some can be like that. Uh, I had one, uh, Sa Blanc, uh, that uh, from, um, oh, what was the, the winery? It was one of the, one of the wineries around Santa Barbara, um, Saca Mesa. And uh, they were offering the, the, the bottles for a dollar because they, he said, well, it, it's a Sauv Blanc, but it, it tastes more like a Chardonnay. Uh-huh. And I said, dollar bottle? I'll take a case. 
I cried when I finished the last one. Mm-hmm. No, it didn't taste anything like a Sauv Blanc. It didn't have the tipicity, but I didn't care. Uh-huh. It was a wonderful wine anyway. But again, if you're selling it as, as that, that's what people expect. So uh, sometimes you luck out when you do that, especially if you go to the, the wineries. A lot of times you can get some really good deals. We did one like that with uh, um, a Chardonnay up, up in uh, Napa. You know, and, and of course, they're more expensive than some other places. And I tried one I really liked, but I said, I can't afford it. He said, um, well, Jim, um, we had something that, that uh, the labels that were damaged, we had water incursion, the, the labels were, so we can't really sell them, but we'll sell you for half price on the on the case. I said, you got a deal. Great. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it's good to go to the wineries. In fact, it's always good. We have local ones around here. You should be checking them out. We have some wonderful ones in the area. My, my village of Corrales has four wonderful, very different ones. And uh, you should be checking out our local wineries as, as well. Do you have a favorite in, of a local winery? Uh, uh, that would be Malagro Vineyards. Okay. They are, uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, Rick does just some of the most amazing stuff with his wines. It's, he, he does world-class stuff. There's a lot of great ones. Of course, you have Gruet, which does outstanding sparkling wine. And in fact, for the price, you can't get better. And there's a lot of great ones that, that come from Southwest Wine. So we, we have a, a lot of really good ones. So uh, it's not easy to choose from one to the other. And, and everyone will have a different favorite that they like. Black Mesa is another really good one. There's lots of good ones around here. So uh, Corrales Winery is actually the first one I tried. Uh, they, they had a Cabernet Franc that I think it was from Venice 99 or 2000 that I absolutely fell in love with. And that's what convinced me that New Mexico could make great wines, and they 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 do. So again, like anything else, where you, you know you haven't had the long history of some some areas, uh, the, the old world they've had they've had you know centuries of experience to, to to go forward. But in a new area, it takes a while to figure out. Okay, what's the soil telling me? What are the best grapes to grow here? What's the best way to grow the grapes here? What's the best way to process them? Uh, so there's a lot of different variables that go into it, and it it doesn't happen in a year. It takes a long time. Okay, let's see. Um, corked. I love Milagro, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I loved it. So, so, so we we about ready because I have plenty more we can cover next. Yeah, time. we know we've got we've got more time. We got about nine minutes there. Oh, okay. Uh, wasn't sure, but oh, okay. So corked, another term. Because it doesn't mean that it has a cork inserted. We already know that. Uh, and it doesn't mean it has bits of cork that fell into it. It really has to deal with a con- uh, contamination of the cork, and that's with what we call TCA, or T46 trichloroanisol for short. And uh, so, yeah, I th- thought there was a little a little glitch there for some reason. And this is uh, this shows up in the wine's nose as um, old moldy newspapers or wet dog. Not saying what wet dog it is, but you, if you have a wet dog, you know what I mean. Uh, labs like that, right? <laughs> it's like guaranteed. This is, uh, you smell like TCA. Get away from me. Anyway, uh, so this is, um, it, it basically had to do with, with uh, what they did when they were processing the corks. Is, is First, they had to dry them out. Uh, a lot of times you'll have some bacteria still in it. But they, they use chlorine. But if they didn't get all the chlorine off, that and the any contamination combines to get what we call the trichloroanisol. So well, it, it, basically, it and it is it's and it starts out. It may start out subtly, but it gets worse and worse over time. It's nothing you can get out of the wine once you have it. You've got it in, in there, and it's interesting because uh, there, there was a, a story about uh, about uh, this and the detection of it by uh, UC Davis students, the ones taking the wine courses. And uh, so the one of the professors had put a bunch of corks out there and wanted them to detect which ones had the TCA and which ones didn't. Mm-hmm. And they had real trouble. And she was a little puzzled by it. Then she realized that almost all of them, uh, from the time they were kids, had gotten those little carrots, you know, those little shaped carrots that they have yes. in their lunch bag. Well, guess what? They used chlorine to finish them, and they had a high content of TCA in it. Disconcerting elements in your bouquet. Well, what it meant is is that this was something they were familiar with that they liked because it was on the carrot, right? It it was a characteristic in the carrot that they got that they enjoyed. And so now when they saw it, they they weren't able to pick it out. No accounting for people's palates, right? That's right. 
exactly. A balance is a term I think we've, we've talked about a lot, actually. That, that's one I th- think uh, you, you'd asked me before about that. And, and again, part of it is making sure that the acidity, the, uh, the mouthfeel, uh, the tannins, the, the alcohol level, uh, all of those are, are coming together and, nice, and nicely balanced. If you have a wine that's, that's uh, too acidic, it's, it's just really challenging to drink. If it doesn't have enough, it tastes kind of flabby, okay? And neither is what you want. You want the freshness or what we sometimes call the lift, which, which comes from the, having the good acidity. Okay, um, volatile acids, which is sometimes just identified as VA. Not to be confused with the Veterans Administration, right. okay? Um, but um, it, it, it doesn't mean the wine's ready to explode, but I wouldn't shake it just to be on the safe side. But it means the acetic acid that's in the wine is excessive, giving off vinegary odors and is usually the result of poor winemakings. If it's in high levels, it smells like nail polish. Whoa, and boy, you know that's not going to be a fun thing. I think uh, I've come I've come across that on some of my brother's wine. My brother's made wine a few times, and uh-huh. you know, some some turn out really great, and some kind of smell like nail polish. That's exactly what it is, and that that's you, you should tell him that. It says you you should be managing your volatile acidity better. I'll tell him that. <laughs> I will. I'll let him know for sure. Your volatile, uh, uh, what is that? Volatile. Vo- volatile acidity. Acidity. Yeah. All right. Hmm. Okay, um, another term I love is yeasty. Uh, other terms you'll uh, encounter along with this are warm bread or brioche. And this has to deal with the, uh, with the smell, of course. It's common in champagnes. So a lot of, a lot of champagnes, the way they're, they're, they're made, uh, they, they have that kind of yeasty thing going on, and it's, it's considered a positive descriptor, unless it's too yeasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sets your teeth on edge, then maybe it's not a good thing. But in m- m- most cases, it's if it is too much, then it's a wine fault. But if it's not, and, and that's a way to, uh, to tell a sparkling wine from champagne versus a domestic one. It's, that's one of the things that's usually more pronounced. It has to do with the fact it comes from the champagne region too, obviously, and, and the grapes and everything else. Okay. So we got about three, uh, two and a half minutes here, uh, Jim. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we go, go into any others? Uh, we, we could also mention, by, by the way, that um, this will be an interesting wine to have for Valentine's Day, um, and we all know that that for Valentine's Day, everyone's going to have lots of chocolate, uh, lots of chocolate, and lots of flowers. So. One of the nice things you could do is is if you're uh, giving your honey a uh, nice box of chocolates, you might also want to consider a good wine to go with it that you could both share. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I, I, Little, I would th- well, it has to have lots of cacao, so like the higher the level, you know, about 80 to 90%, I like that. I don't know why. Just so oh, much uh, well, uh, in dark chocolate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love dark chocolate. That's probably my, my favorite. You know, a lot of people prefer milk chocolate. There's a certain slight bitter edge to a dark chocolate, but the thing is, if you're having wine with it, and it kind of smooth, they kind of smooth each other out. And, 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 and what wine would you put with a dark chocolate? A dark chocolate, I would probably use a bigger a, a Syrah or a Zinfandel or, or a Cab. And in fact, in, if, if you go to uh, some wine shops, uh, or not wine shops, but wine tasting areas, so, sometimes they'll say, oh, with our Cab, you should try some chocolate. They're not doing you a favor. They know that any good, any uh, decent wine will go great when you have chocolate with it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so just be every time someone offers us something like that when I'm doing a tasting, I say, okay, but first I'm going to try it by itself. I'm going to try the wine by itself. I want to get a, a sense of what the wine's like. Then I'll see what it's like when when I pair it with cheese or with wine. Okay? I bet just about any wine tastes good after listening to this show too. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. They better be drinking some, for that matter. But uh, so, yeah, any t- time you're you're doing the the uh, the, the chocolate r- routine, another fun thing to try sometime is uh, Brix B R I X. Uh, they actually have three different types of chocolates. They actually have a white chocolate. Now that's a really challenging one. White chocolate is a very challenging one to to work mm. with wine. Um, so, uh, if I had like a, a really aged German Riesling. 
that would that would be killer with it because the, the, the white chocolate almost seems like you you never really got it all the way down. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just like there's still some stuck somewhere yeah, there. Yeah, it's true. So that would be a good, good way to have that go. But uh, rosé wines as well as red. So there's some rosé ones that can go great. In fact, there's a couple that uh, that um, Eddie loves that uh, would be perfect for almost any of them, I, I think. So a couple of ones from the Rhone Valley do where, where they do more extraction. So the, and the other thing, if you're doing a party, is and, and is have everyone bring their favorite chocolate and their favorite wine. Ooh, that's and, a that's a good party. Bring your favorite chocolate and your favorite wine. There yeah. you go. And and then you can just whip, you know mix and match and just try different things. There you go. Just make it all work. Well, I, we're gonna go to uh, New Zealand's greatest uh, rock group of all time. Uh, they are now uh, they are now no longer. Uh, they had their final tour, I believe, back in. 2016, 2017. It's Crowded House. That's right. Oh, really? It's the greatest uh, band from New Zealand that I know of. Um, And their lead singer. And they were formed in Australia, but basically they were New Zealanders. We appreciate everybody tuning in for this edition of the Spirits of New Mexico right here in the Kiva. AM 1600 Kiavi, ABQ.FM, com. Stay tuned, everybody. We appreciate everybody, as always, tuning in and rounding out your week with Jim Hammond and the boys uh, saying so long. Until next week, I'll see you Monday, bright and early, 4 p.m.